0: Amen. Thank you, team, for leading us in worship through song. Uh, Be funny, right to John, chapter 12. We'll be in verses 12 through 36 this morning. Title of our sermon is A King's Ransom. A King's Ransom. The narrative of John has really been leading up to This moment, as Pastor Brian taught us last week, that majority of John's gospel takes place over the next couple chapters over this holy week. Jesus, this morning, we'll see him enter into Jerusalem, but that title, a king's ransom comes from this very text as we will read, um, the thought of there being a king. I thought about it a lot uh, yesterday and and last night about how many of us um, almost romanticize the idea of a king because we really don't understand what it means to be a part of a kingdom. Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think anybody in this room has ever had a direct earthly king. Now, for us, we have to kind of fill in the blanks. We kind of have to read between the lines to understand what it means to have a king and what that relationship dynamic would be like. Now, we try to do this ourselves, don't we? We use a a lot of slang, a lot of um, illustration to talk about a king. If you're a man and you have a house, one day, if you will have that house, or Heath may say this now, and Bailey, it's good to be the king of my domain. For uh, a lot of you college students, I had to learn some of this. I learned through my wife and her students at John Millage. When people say young king, what they mean. Or as the students call my wife, queen. I had no clue. They were saying that's a title of endearment. That's a, a, a title to uh, show favor. And yet we have a king. Not one in... Uh, cute uh, slang that we can talk about. It's not someone beside us. It's not someone over us. It's not a governmental structure, but we have King Jesus. And what I'm hoping for us to see this morning as we look at this text is what kind of king he is. What's his makeup? What's his fortitude? What type of king is this king that we get to call king? You see, I I hope that we get that perspective this morning because it changes everything when we see that whom we're in this relationship with. I hope that some of us have a paradigm shift this morning in understanding who Christ is, whether that be for encouragement's sake or whether that be for correction's sake, as the Holy Spirit desires you see, when a king comes, there's multiple things that can happen. Pastor Brian or or Bailey can tell you this. When we're looking at text in scripture, there's a biblical truth always there. But there's so many different applications. And I was talking to Ross about this this morning. Is I've been torn as I'm looking at this text. Because when a king comes, as you can look at your bulletin there, where we could be talking about how it cultivates courage but yet there's also this idea when our king Jesus comes in the manner in which he comes today that it brings humility as well. So I hope that we can strike that balance well this morning to see for us to cultivate courage, we must believe Christ is our king. But as we are cultivating that courage, it also brings with it a humility because our humble king. So join me in the reading of the word as i believe what we just outlined is made visible through God's word. John 12:12 12, 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, "Hosanna!" Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had had been thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Father, thank you for your word. That as we set out on this week, on your day, that we approach it. And when we approach it, we find your grace. We find your encouragement. We find the testimony of yourself. So Holy Spirit, would you prepare us to receive your word with all joy, with eager hearts to hear from you this morning? Would you allow yourself to be magnified through the preaching of your word, the removal of distractions, any accusations from the enemy, may they not be present this morning May our flesh be in submission to your word as we hear it? Would you accomplish the purpose for which you sent your word, that you may be glorified in this body? We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Jesus is walking into Jerusalem with a great crowd. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead, and there is an energy coursing through this crowd. What Jesus is doing here is no mistake. This is Passover week, and the faithful from all across Israel would come during Passover week, and they would come into Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and this is what Christ is doing. Passover was being celebrated as a The high priest would lay his hands on a lamb and that lamb would be slaughtered for the sins of the people. Christ is that lamb entering into the city and he is is walking down the Mount of Olives, going into the Kidron Valley. People are coming around. When the Jews were coming into Israel, they would sing songs of ascent. So if you look throughout the Psalms, if you see a song of ascent, these are songs that were being sung by the nation of Israel as they were coming in to worship the Lord. In our very text this morning, it's what verse 13 is borrowing from Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was a song that was being sung of the people. We are blessed because we get to come into Jerusalem and worship and then Jesus and the crowd see that that psalm had deeper meaning than just any person coming. The he that was mentioned here in Psalm 118 was he, Jesus, coming in. As he was coming into Jerusalem, he set himself down on a donkey. As I said, this king is coming in, and we see when a king comes, it brings great courage, and we'll get to that, but we can't overlook this at first. We cannot overlook that the way he chose to come into Jerusalem. Could have he came in on a royal steed, on a royal saddle with a purple sash, with a procession of people coming in as a conquering king? Yes, he absolutely could have. But he chose to come in in humility. He wasn't even sitting on a saddle. It would be considered dishonorable for such a king to be even touching a donkey, much less be riding him. Mentioned in some of the synoptic gospels is something that John leaves out here, but is a beautiful picture for us, the people were taking their cloaks. It'd be as if, though, I'm taking this jacket, which we would consider a nicer piece of clothing that we wouldn't want to get dirty. And they were laying down their garments on the road so that way even Jesus' donkey could touch them. They're saying, it's not a dishonor for my finest of things to be even trashed by this donkey, but it's an honor for it. They are worshiping Jesus. Why? Because he is the promised king. This triumphal entry was prophesied all the way back some 600 years before by Zechariah. It was quoted here in verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is why in verse 13, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, which means, save us, save us. They knew this king was prophesied to come and save them. Many of these people were perhaps feeling in political bondage to the Roman Empire, but it goes much deeper than this because they recognize who he is by putting their cloaks on the ground, that he's king. The save us is the same cry that every saint. doesn't just cry out at the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation, when God gave you faith to believe, you cried out, save me, did you not? Save me from my sins. Save me from my depravity. Save me. But church, this is, Hosanna, this save me, is the same prayer, the same psalm of ascent that we sing every single day. Save me from my flesh today. Save me from my discouragement. Save me from my anxiety. Save me from this fear that I have welling up inside of me. We said that as we look at Christ as king, it cultivates this courage. How many of you have seen movies where there's a great battle about to occur? Over the years, I think you guys have heard enough battle analogies from me, but I'm a war geek. Imagine a battle front. Think brave heart in your mind, if you will. People are lined up, What always happens in these movies? It can seem so cliche. The men are standing there looking at another army that's seemingly far superior to theirs, far outnumbering them. And what's happening? The men in the line are fearful. They're afraid. And at the right moment, what happens? That good leader, that king, rides out in front of the men and gives this rah-rah speech that gives them the courage, that gives them the hope to go out and fight. Now, when Christ the king came in to Jerusalem, I find it no coincidence that Zechariah says, fear not in that prophecy. Fear not. Why? Because the Messiah had been delayed. The Messiah had seemed like he'd been far away. It seemed like the enemies were surrounding. Do we not still, at times, feel this way? Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? It seems like everything is just going to overtake me. What, what's going on? And the king comes in and brings courage. Courage to what? Courage to sometimes, for some of us, take another step of faithfulness. To Take another step towards growing in him to take another step towards killing sin, to take another step of inviting that friend to worship with you, the courage that you need to overcome some of the suffering that the Lord is allowing in your life for your good. This promised king from Zechariah is such a benefit to our souls. Why? This king is everything you will need in your life. There's a comfort in knowing that the promises of God were made previous to your circumstances. The promises that your king will be there. The promises that your king is the king of the universe. The disciples didn't understand this at first in verse 16. They remembered him later when it was written about him. But this great crowd was following because of what he had done with Lazarus. Why do you follow your King Jesus? Is it because he's saved you? Is it because of what he has done? Is it because you have a hope of what he will do? Many of us can answer in the affirmative in all of those cases, but I pray that we would see that we follow him to do what the crowd was doing in verse 17, to bear witness about what he has already done in your life. That this promised king is the same promised king for those around you that need this Messiah, Jesus. But as has been the case in all throughout John, there's those that when Christ comes they worship and those when Christ comes they run or they grumble. As the Pharisees do here in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. The world. The Pharisees are saying to one another, It doesn't matter that these people are worshiping. Who's coming after you? The sinners are coming after you. The world is coming after you. These Pharisees are so hardened in their pride. The very people as we see when the king comes in that should birth humility as we have a humble king riding on the donkey, the humble crowds, the ones that are truly in love with the king and following the king, what are they doing? They're responding in kind and laying down palm branches or their very cloaks. What do the Pharisees do? In other accounts in Matthew and Luke, the Pharisees go so far as to rebuke Jesus and say, you need to rebuke your disciples for calling you king. If you've ever had this tension or worry of in your heart, I know I've felt it at times in the earlier part of my faith, Of does Jesus ever say anywhere that he is royalty, that he's king, that he's divine? We see this here in the text where he does not rebuke the crowds when they give him worship. Just a side thought there for this promised king. But not only is this king promised for us, but he's our needed king Verses 20 through 26, these Greeks, these supposedly sinners are coming to Jesus. And Jesus, even though he's king, models humility himself. These Greeks come up to Philip, perhaps because Philip would have been more accustomed to some Greeks as there was a larger population in his hometown in Bethsaida. And they ask, sir, we wish to see Jesus to which Philip says, I maybe don't have that pole. Let me go talk to Andrew. Andrew and Jesus are a little bit closer. But when Andrew and Philip go to Jesus and tell him that these crowds wish to see him, they wish to worship him, I find it interesting in verse 23 how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you had a friend that did not know Christ as king and you didn't know necessarily the words to say, you feel a little inadequate of sharing the gospel, so you want to go to another friend and say, hey, will you, will you explain this? And then if they were to respond kind of as Jesus here, not answering that question, how would you feel Again, I think it's very important for us to put ourselves in these situations, not to just read this, but to feel this. It can almost seem unkind. It can almost seem as if Jesus is trying to keep him at an arm's length, but rather, Jesus is showing these Greeks, if they truly wish to follow him, they must follow him completely and in the manner of which he, the king, operates, which is in humility. If you wish to follow me, the hour has come For me to die is what Jesus is saying. This king who is already the conquering king at this moment. Realize that Christ, when he comes into Jerusalem, previous to him even being crucified, he is already king. He did not have to do anything else to solidify his kingdom. This king could come into Jerusalem, demand whatever he wanted from the powers that be and what he Christ, the good and humble king, demanded was a ransom, and not a ransom of gold and riches and thrones because they were already his, but what he came to do is to glorify the Father in ransoming you and me back to him. This is the parable in verses 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Christ is this grain of wheat. Christ did not have to lay down his life, but willingly did so. Why? That it would bear much fruit. And that fruit is you and I and every saint from every local body that has made up the global church for every generation ever. From his one seed of faithfulness, birth. Plenty of fruit in the seed of faithfulness was not him going out and conquering in the means of which we think a king should conquer, but in the means of humility and laying down his life. Paul illuminates this for us in Philippians chapter two, if you'd like to turn there with me. Philippians is the first epistle that we got to teach here as a church body. Philippians 2 shows us the example of Christ's humility. This is the example of which we are to follow in the humility of this king, Jesus. As Paul implores us in verse 4, "...that each of you look out not for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we hope to have courage and cultivate true Christian courage. It's not just simply believing that Christ is king, but believing what type of king he is, and it's a humble king, and that we are to call called to follow in those footsteps of humility. If you hope to have Christian courage and go and do great things for the kingdom, you must be like the king of that kingdom. You cannot do anything the king of the kingdom himself has not granted you the ability to do. And I have fear for us that so often that we misunderstand humility and what true humility looks like. Jesus gives us a taste of it in verse 25 and 26 back in John Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This taste of being like the king looks like being a servant. Often the young kings or queens that we look up to in society are those who are loudest, those who have the most platform, those that seemingly have it all together when Christ is saying the one who is most like the king is the servant of servants because Christ emptied himself and wrapped himself in human flesh and took on this form of a servant. What am I getting at? This humility sometimes, we mistake self-loathing for humility. We mistake looking down at ourselves for humility when biblical, Christian, gospel-centered humility is looking at ourselves rightly. Yes, before Christ, we were. We were children of wrath. We were depraved. We were wretches. But if we do not move forward from that and see that the king came to ransom us and make us a people in living stones and conform us more into his image, all we are going to do, instead of be humble, we are going to self-hate because we are walking in our identity previous to our regeneration. Does flesh remain? Yes. But the promised king ransomed you, knowing every bit of sin you would ever commit, and it did not change his affection for you. Humility does not mean looking more at yourself in a way of saying, I am so sinful. Let me tell you how sinful I am. We already know that. We are all fallen short, but true humility is for every look you take at yourself, you take 10 at Christ and say that he is transforming me. He is conforming me. You see, this is why he's our needed king. Because before you can ever have Christian courage, you must have a right understanding of humility. You will never go out and conquer for the sake of the gospel in your own power. We know that. But functionally, we operate that way because we stop looking at Christ and we keep looking at ourselves tell me this is not true in your own life I haven't I haven't been in the word this week I haven't been in prayer I can't go out and and share Christ man I've been short with my wife I've been short with my housemates Been short with my kids I, I can't go out Yes, we should repent of sin, but realize that Christ was crucified and for it, our King. And we still go out and serve. Your sin hasn't disqualified you, it's the very thing that qualifies you for being a son or daughter. So we must get past this false guise of humility when we outwardly tell other people that we are just awful. But then inwardly, when we realize that, we self hate. Or when other people actually point the finger at it, then we deflect or justify. Those are tell, tell signs or symptoms that you're not walking in a Christ like humility. Therefore, we can never cultivate courage. If you don't see Christ as you're a humble and gentle king that saved you, when he calls you to arms, you're going to be in the mire of despair. As soldiers are made ready for battle, the gospel makes you ready for battle. The enemy wants to extinguish every bit of your courage and humility with fiery darts, but we take up the shield of faith. And that faith is not faith in ourselves, that one day we will be better. Hear me, church. The faith that we extinguish those darts of the en- of the enemy is the faith that God loves us I'm talking with my DNA this past week and this topic came up and sometimes we can feel like as if though we want to be good servants to the king it means we don't need to do things that make the king mad if the king has a will the king's will should be followed shouldn't it And we know we don't do that. We never measure up. And then we can feel as if the king is mad at us. So to get back in good favor of the king, we need to do better. And then the king will be more pleased with us. But truly the opposite is exactly what we need to do. We need to see the love that the king has for us. And then we will love our king. And then when we love our king, we will not walk in the flesh. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. If you hope to kill sin, if you hope to walk in humility, if you hope to walk in Christian courage where you are on fire for the Lord and you're talking about him everywhere, it doesn't start with you trying, it starts with you seeing that Christ said it's finished and that he loves you. And that will fan into flame that humility that sparks the fire of Christian courage. And that's how every reformation, how every renaissance of the faith has ever started, not by people trying to be holy, but seeing their holy one has made them holy. And they walk in that and they're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they pursue it. I cannot stress enough, this is why Christ is our needed king. Not only is he our needed king, but also our glorified king. Verses 27 through 36, depicts Jesus as our conquering king. As our conquering king. Verse 27, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Christ came that he may lay down his life. If that is the model, if that is the motto, if that is the standard of our king, if that's his cry in battle, if you will, why would that not be our cry? That same cry from that little boy of crying out, Mommy, what do we cry out? As the crowds cried out, Hosanna, save me. What do we cry out? As Christ in his soul was troubled, what was he crying out? Not save me, but sustain me. So if you are currently in a God-ordained providential moment where you are suffering, where you're fearful, where you don't know what the next step is, where you're in true pain or sorrow or hurting, your response is the same response of your king. This is the purpose of the hour I came. God has predestined your steps in every walk of your life. The die is cast, but the decision is the Lord's. This is something that I have to preach to myself so often that my circumstances are God-ordained, and therefore my response is my duty to my king. Our response is our duty to our king. Because he's a conquering king here. He's not timid and afraid. He's not shaking in his boots. He came for this purpose and for this hour. He's not fearful. He came and he's conquered fear already. Therefore, when we go to him, we have the access to conquer that fear through Christ. He prays in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Which, I wish I was here for this moment. Then a voice came from heaven. I can't imagine, if I were to be able to pray, and like, I'm sure we've all prayed, Lord, I need your direction, I need, and to hear a voice from heaven as confirmation. I would just pray that same prayer every time to get verbal affirmation. I'm a verbal affirmation person but God confirms I glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is significant because this is one of only three places in all of scripture where God audibly speaks to his son, at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and here in this moment. What is God doing in each one of those moments? He is confirming the message of Christ, that he is the king. In this baptism, this is my son. In his transfiguration, this is my son. And in this moment, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, of whom I have agreed in eternity past to send into the world to be your conquering king, to save you from your sins. The Father is glorified and he will do it again when the skies rumble and the earth totters at Christ's crucifixion and the graves open up of old saints and walk around and the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. God will glorify it again in that moment. The crowd in verse 29 stood there and heard it, said it had thundered. Friends, the gospel was foolishness to those that are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel. If you have a friend you're sharing Christ with and it seems like there's a roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, it's because only the Holy Spirit can open their hearts to believe. This foolish age will find any reason as to not believe that Christ is who he says he is. I don't know about you, but I've heard long thunder, but not thunder that pronounced words. This is why others said an angel spoke to him. To which Jesus responds, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. That voice came to confirm that Jesus was this glorified king. Verse 31, Jesus proclaims, now is the judgment of this world. It's a shift in his verbiage throughout John. It's been saying the coming hour, the coming hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour. Jesus now is saying the hour is now. Now the ruler of this world be cast out, that's Satan. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. The judgment, this conquering king has conquered Satan. He's come to hold him in judgment And contrary to our popular belief, at times when people say the devil made me do it or there's temptation, our greatest enemy now is the flesh that remains because Satan has been vanquished. Christ, our conquering king. Not only for Satan did he conquer, but in verse 32, he conquered even the grave. When I'm lifted up from the earth, it's showing what manner he would die, but it's not only when he's being lifted up on the cross but Christ is also speaking of his glorification when he is raised as further as this conquering king this is a diatribe of all the things that our king is conquering in verse 32 he conquers every ethnic and every political barrier when he says that he will draw all people to myself he will draw people from every background to himself, obviously not all without, uh, it's all without distinction, not all without exception. This conquering king has drawn you to himself. We forget that Christ has already conquered in the moments when we're sitting in our sin. The moment's right in temptation. Perhaps the thing that we need to remember the most, that Christ has already conquered that. Sin may have a sweet foretaste, but a bitter aftertaste. And in that moment, we can remember that Christ has already conquered that sin, and there is no sin as sweet that would be a supplement for our Savior in, in walking in obedience to him. Perhaps the courage that needs to be cultivated in you and your life, first and foremost, is the courage to say no to your own flesh. Perhaps it's the courage to help someone you know that is walking in sin, to go to them and say, there is a far better way. Let's walk that road together. Verse 34, the crowd was a bit confused here. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Is that not the most important question anyone could ever ask? Who is the Son of Man? The, the title that Jesus uses most to describe himself shows the humility of our King, shows his not humiliation in his death, but his humility that he chooses, out of all the titles that he could be known by, to identify himself with us, the Son of Man. Imagine if you were this great conqueror. Do we not love titles? Do we not love power and prestige? Whether right or wrong, I whether noble or or not. There's nothing wrong with me loving the title of being a husband, of them looking at the sweet parents in the back of being mom and dad. But our flesh can twist that of these titles the Lord's given to us to show more of himself and it will feed our flesh. Christ didn't do that. He could have been known as the conqueror of the universe. He could have been known as king of kings, which he is, but he called himself the son of man. What a title. Jesus closes with an illustration very akin to when he was going up to Jerusalem just a few weeks ago. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. His encouragement to the crowds, his encouragement to us, walk in the light. The Son of Man is not so high and set apart that he has not humbled himself to be close beside you, to show you the way of humility, to help you cultivate this Christian courage to go out into Milledgeville and to say, I know it seems like it's foolishness that I believe a man 2,000 years ago was actually God in the flesh and died for my sins, but let me show you by my love for him that I believe it. How do we think the church thrived in every one of these epistles where Paul could go into Thessalonica, preach the gospel for three weeks, and the world flip on its head? It's not through great uh, structures of man. It's not through... Uh, great uh, vision of men, it's through Christ that these people believed he was the conquering king. Even if they went out and died, what does it mean? Christ has already conquered death. They would be with him earlier. What does this look like for us to walk in the light lest the darkness overtake you? There's a warning to the unbelieving world there while Christ was there in the presence, the physical light of the world, the one who spoke the earth into existence, walk in light lest they reject the light. There's also a lesson for us as the church here is to walk in the light, is to pursue this humble king. What dampens your pursuit of Christ? What dampens it? In the most simplistic terms, it's not walking in the light, it's preferring the darkness. What does that do to your flesh when I say that? If it rears its head, I pray that you would know that Christ is still king and loves you. If I say that at times what dampens your pursuit is your pursuit your pursuit of Christ is your pursuit of the darkness, if that crushes you and you say, I know that already, Kyle, I don't need you to tell me that if that is wilting for you. The same remedy is true that Christ still loves you and not because of your pursuit of him. Remember, Christ came pursuing you. The warning, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. It's the call to the unbelieving world to believe that Christ is the light of the world, the way back to the Father, the way in right relationship with him, to believe that Christ is king. But for us as the church, we have a call to believe as well. Belief does not stop at the moment of salvation. Belief is an everyday treasure the Lord has given to us To believe. What do you have to believe about Christ as your king this week? To believe that he was truly humble and to do a solemn self examination to see if you look more like a king of this world or more like Christ your king? To believe that you too could be just as bold as that person you're idolizing as your mind for Christ. The only thing that's holding you back is your self-perception of your own disqualification and sin. This king that we have in Jesus, again, I said, seems so foreign to us because we don't have a king. The closest thing we can try to extrapolate is a president and a president that we have, whether uh, whatever aisle you fall on, I pray that you would see that this Christ as king is so humble and so exalted above that that it does not matter where you fall because your first loyalty is to the kingdom of that king and you have a duty to walk in the light as you're here in his light. There's times that I wish that myself or maybe others in this body, we could have the sight to see beyond the applications of a sermon, to see what it would look like if it was actually manifest in our life. When words fail from my lips or from any who herald the gospel, we trust that the Holy Spirit will apply, but just hoping to give us a glimpse of life walking In the same manner of our King Jesus. For you that are wondering what next steps you'll be taking. Whether it's staying in Milledgeville. If you're a college student. Whether if it's like some of us that are moving and going other places. What does that look like for you? It means accepting everything in all humility that Christ is the king wherever you go. And if your king has called you to be here, he'll ensure you will be fruitful as you're here. How can I make that promise? Yes, I have confidence in the gospel that's gonna be proclaimed from this pulpit as I'm no longer with you, but more than that, I have confidence in the word that Christ, when he said that that wheat went in the ground and it bear much fruit, Confidence all the more is in Christ your king, that he will grow you, he'll sustain you, he'll comfort you. But as doing examination of the body here, and things that we have talked about as elders, and the joy that we get to see in some of the courage of you guys stepping out and sharing your faith, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that courage doesn't always look like what you think it looks like. That cultivating courage isn't just being willing to speak up in that moment, to share Christ, or to say in your philosophy class, "I don't know if I believe that," or to say in your your politics class, or it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always look like in your workplace of stepping into an opportunity to share the gospel while it may. What I hope that we see is that believing Christ as our King and He's such a gentle and humble King, how it cultivates that courage is in the small everyday moments. That you make a decision it's a moment of integrity. To be courageous in the next step of faithfulness, to confess sin, to be courageous in the next moment to take a brother or sister aside, to be courageous in the next moment, to even when you don't feel like praying, pray, to be courageous in the next moment, to remember that Christ still loves you. And those small little moments, those nuggets build up over time. Do you think those men that are courageous in battle were only courageous in battle? Or do you think that they lived a life of courage that just revealed itself in battle. Every moment of our life is a glorious battle that we get to fight in Christ because the victory is already secure. But because Christ is here, you have all the reason for courage. Because Christ is risen, you have all the reason to believe that you can take that next step of faithfulness. That even when you failed yesterday even if you failed today that does not mean that you're defeated that does not mean that sin has dominion over you but Christ does and his kingdom is a good kingdom you're a part of as we launch out into this week we have this opportunity to do so it's been a joy to hear about how even sitting outside these doors here that men and women from this community are coming to hear the gospel and we're providing food. That too is a act of courage to believe that Christ is King, you're telling the world. I encourage you to step forward into that, to calendar that, to make sure that's a priority for you. Heard of a great report from our missional community As I got to go out and try to play wiffle ball, but uh, that was for not, but for a better purpose as God introduced this body to some local policemen in this city. What's a small act of courage this week to believe Christ is king? To go there and faithfully fellowship with the church and to, as the moment presents itself, to share the gospel with those men, to invite them here, to invite them into your life. hope we see that that humility of knowing who we are in Christ because of his work will birth that courage. So if you don't feel like you have that courage, if you feel like that's been lacking, perhaps the first step for you this week is is just faithfulness to step out and be courageous, but perhaps for some of us it's to look in the mirror and to see if we have a right view of self. Do we look like our king and if we don't, it's okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. Make sense? So I pray we go out with this this week. And more than that, that even if we don't see the immediate fruit in the community in our lives, that we take those small steps of faithfulness until, We know that the fruit will bear because this very text promises us that it will. That the king has come, that he is triumphant and he has ransomed us and he will ransom many more to himself because he ultimately is the humble one and he ultimately is the one with the courage to accomplish his purpose. And we just get to play a part in it. Father, thank you. That you're king and that at times that we don't have to be in our flesh and other times that we don't even want to be, it's our prayer that you would be glorified rightly in our lives to see that you are high and lifted up and exalted because you have conquered. But that also you are gentle and lowly so as to be intimately equated with us in our weakness. God, there's times that we can fill in our own life that we don't deserve to be your sons or daughters, and rightly so, but you've made us in your image and likeness, and you've placed your Holy Spirit in us, and Father, recorded in your word in Matthew, in this very text, if Jesus answers back those Pharisees who were rebuking for the worship, and he says, if they don't cry out, the very rocks will cry out. God, all of creation is yours and that includes us. So you're gracious and kind to us to allow us the privilege of worship and even in the moments where we don't feel like worshiping, we know that if we trust you, that that's exactly what we actually need is to worship you our promised and good and conquering king. Thank you for allowing us to be citizens of your kingdom and sons and daughters. So would our praise that we are about to sing out now be glorifying to you? Would it be true? Would it be from our hearts? And would it be a sweet aroma to you knitting us up in you, to send us out this week to live, to glorify you as your son glorified you. It's in your name we pray, amen.